I am so grateful to Omer and to uh, Pastor Mark for sharing. And what I'm going to share today dovetails right into what it is that they had shared about openness and community and about how inclusivity and about how the Jesus started something and we are to continue it. Um, we've subtitled this, How Did We Get Here? And this question could be asked in multiple ways. How in the world does a church in 2017 get here? And the reason why that's important is because the stories that we tell and the history that has led us up to us inform us who we are. And in a lot of Christian conversation, many of you have had these conversations online and at family around Thanksgiving and around all sorts of other at work and all sorts of different contexts. You're having conversations about Christianity in an American context. And you're arguing about the merits of different interpretations or the different expressions of that faith. That's all well and good. But the reason why we go back to the very beginning is to ask ourselves a question, what's got this thing started in the first place? Now, to really go back, you have to go back four and a half years to our Genesis series when we started in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But at least for our Christian story, we want to go back to the Acts story because this isn't going to inform us. Who are we really? And that's really at the heart of this question. Who are we as followers of Jesus, as a church? And then that should inform where we ought to go. How do we walk out of these doors every single week when we gather? How do we walk into our places of work, walk into our families, and behave? How do we engage on our social media, in conversations? How do we engage socially and politically? All of these questions need to be grounded in who we are and how we got here. So that's the heart behind why we're doing this particular series. I'd like to actually go back to verse 1. Omer did a wonderful introduction. If you haven't heard it, please go back and listen to it. And now I want to take us through the first eight verses and draw out some of the very beginnings of the theme and get to a key verse, verse Eight, which many of us have heard about and try to illuminate maybe a different way of thinking about this. If you have your Bibles, you are welcome to open up to the book. This is Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, this name, Theophilus, anytime you see a name in the Bible, you have to ask, what does it mean? Every name, and I mean every name, has a meaning and has some significance. The word Theophilus, for the first portion, Theos means God, and Phyllis means Love. So this is God lover or a lover of God. And there's been lots of discussion about this. This is a person who loves God. And some commentators have suggested, because of the way Luke is writing, that this is a symbolic representation of anybody who happens to love God. Of anybody who happens to have an affection for this God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Now, if you get to serious scholarship, they're going to tell you it is a person. But one of the interpretive lenses is that it's also for anybody, anybody who happens to have this love of the divine, of this God, of whatever this movement is going, is happening. So Luke is addressing it to a person and to all of us. So in other words, we're not just studying past history. We're also studying a letter that could be directed essentially to you. You can read this much more personally in that sense. Verse 3, after his suffering, he presented himself 
to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, this phrase is really important. We have to go back to our gospel series to remember that the kingdom of God was a phrase to mean God being in charge. And why is that important? Because in this day and age, when they were writing, someone else is in charge. Now, it's hard to get our brains wrapped around this because we think kingdom of God is some sort of deep theological term, or we think monarchy. But when you think about maybe the refugee camp that I just shared with you, or other regimes, other rulers of other countries, and they are in charge, this phrase, the kingdom of God, becomes much more passionately yearning in our, in our souls. Yes, I am so yearning for God to be in control. When you have so much corruption, so much um, hatred, and so much all sorts of really, really bad dysfunctional leadership, we are yearning for this. On one occasion, he was eating with them. He gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. Now, this gift is probably the word, the promise of my father, which means that the way the NIV translates this is probably not great. There's a promise about what God is doing here that we're going to get to in a little bit. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, listen to this question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He just said about the kingdom of God being in charge. And what are they asking for? When are we going to be in charge? Do you feel the tension and the distinction there? And this is really important because back in our gospel series, back when we talked about the announcement, the good news, we talked about how all sorts of horrible regimes have come into Jerusalem and wreaked tremendous havoc. A thousand crucifixions surrounding the Jerusalem temple during the fall in 70 AD. And this guy Vespasian being an utter murderer, tens of thousands, people escaping through the gutters of Jerusalem at this particular time. So when that happens and they are kicked out, the continuing impulse of humanity is, when are we going to get back in power? When are we going to get back into control? When are we going to have the throne? When do we finally get to have our political say again? This is why they are asking, is it now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to us. Hold on to that. How many of you, when faced with dysfunction and power and corruption, immediately want to grab and say, I want back in power. This is a natural human impulse, and we find it here even in Acts. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Did you catch that? When are we going to be back in power? And Jesus flips this just a little bit and says, oh, you're going to get power all right. But it's not the kind of power that you think it is. Now, we've gone through all the Gospels. Well, I shouldn't say all the Gospels, but we've gone through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've talked about the movement of Jesus, and we've talked before in these settings how the disciples just simply didn't get it. Jesus is talking about loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, praying for those who persecute you. And then the disciples say, you, you, know what, you want us to call down uh, fire and thunder and destroy these people, Jesus? 
I mean, they are constantly not getting it. And here at the very beginning of Acts, they don't get it again. Are we going to get back in power? And Jesus says, oh, you don't know. You don't know the times and the hour. But you will receive power. But it's not the kind of power that you think it is. This is a different kind of power. And here in verse 8, here in verse 8, becomes comes one of the most central verses in the book of Acts in this opening chapter. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's so much in here to unpack. I'm just going to address two questions. What is a witness? And what does Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth really mean? Those are the only two questions I'd like to ask and address today. And I hope they bless you, encourages you, and challenges you. When I hear the word witness, what is the first thing that you think of? For those of you who grew up in church, maybe in evangelicalism, or had even been told that you are to be a witness, this is what I think of. There is an activity, there is a person around your circle that doesn't know Jesus. And your job, your job, your commission, your responsibility is to make sure that person gets into heaven when they die. So you are now to be a witness to them. It is an activity that you do by passing on and sharing the truths. Sometimes there's a script. Sometimes you draw a nice little picture and show where they are and show where Jesus is and how, you know, all that kind of stuff. So there's all sorts of different ways to witness. Witness is this activity that you do. So much so that there's a religion in the United States that actually uses the word witness as a part of their name. They're called the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, if you take a look at their website, they have this description. Thus, our name Jehovah's Witnesses designates us as a group of Christians who proclaim the truth about Jehovah. That's a really good definition of our understanding of witness, the creator of all things. Then they have this other statement in here, which I think is actually fairly nice and accurate. We witness to others by the way we live our lives and by sharing with them what we've learned from the Bible. Underneath this entire idea is that there is somebody who doesn't know, I do know, and witnessing is me making sure that I pass on that information. And again, usually with the understanding that that person is going to go to hell unless I do my witnessing activity. This is how it's often framed within Christian or evangelical circles. So much so that some people have made a nice business out of it. These are called chick tracks there's these little pieces of paper that have cartoons and stories in them. And you read through them and you, you, you read about how bad and evil and nasty person you are and how all the evils of the world. And at the very end, that tells you how to get to Jesus. And witnessing means you take a bunch of these tracks, you put them in your pocket, you go out into the world and you find somebody who looks pagan and heathen and somebody who looks like they're going to go to hell. And you make sure that you hand this over to them. Or you leave it at the table, you know, in some sort of nondescript place, make sure somebody picks it up and they read this track and they get to get saved in that particular way. Witnessing, I got first introduced to it when I went to Bible college because you actually take a class in this. It's called personal evangelism. It's how you are to witness. So I went to a place called San Jose Christian College and I had an assignment. You are to go and witness to somebody. And let me tell you something. All of that I'm talking about is a little bit uncomfortable for me because I just, I'm like at 11 on a 1 through 10 on an introvert scale. I don't want to meet strangers. I barely like to meet myself sometimes. I just don't want to say hi to anybody, right? It's like if you look up the about 
about page on my website. It clicks right to the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistics Manual, under Social Anxiety Disorder. I do not want to witness to anybody. So here I am in this class, and I take this class. You are to go and witness, and let me tell you how bad at witnessing I am. I figure, let me go to the easiest place I can think of right around the corner is San Jose State University. So I walk on to San Jose State, and I do my script of witnessing. Excuse me. Walk up to the first person I see, just get my assignment done and over with. May I ask you a question? Uh, if you were to die today, do you know where you would go? Has anybody ever asked this question? Has anybody been asked this question? Yes. Uh, this person looks at me and says, are you from San Jose Christian College? <laughs> I said, yes, why? He goes, is your teacher Glenn Miller? I said, yes. Why? Oh, I'm his son. (laughs) That's how bad at witnessing I am. The first person I find on my assignment to witness to is my professor's son. He had no idea where he was going. He got saved that day. So anyway, (laughs) now I had kind of gotten on board with this. And I started to think, hey, there really should be some witnessing that's going on. So I got one of the, and I was really bad at this. I got one of these tracks. Now, these tracks are mm, a little deceitful. You leave this on a table at a rest. I know some of you are cringing right now. I know this is who I used to be. You leave this on the table and the person thinks, I've just got a hundred dollar tip. What did they get? No, they get a message. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the camel. You know, invest in Jesus Christ. He will never forsake you. And it's a track. <laughs> Underneath all of these things is this idea. Get out into the world and make sure that all of those people that are not in the tribe somehow get witness to so that they can get into the tribe. This was my understanding of witness, and at least in my current understanding and some of the conversations I've had, a very common, still-held understanding of what it means to witness. However, when you read this passage closely, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. This word for witness is actually the word martures, from the word martus which sounds like the word martyr. The word for witness in the original Greek is actually the word for martyr, which changes drastically what this word could possibly mean. Now, the word martyr invokes all sorts of uh, horrible visions and, and, of course, people dying for their faith. That's the traditional definition. And I want to take nothing away from the fact that There are many people in this world, even still today, and um, I I, I debated on whether to show pictures. I decided not to because it was just, there are still people today that are dying for their faith. So I I don't want to take anything away from that. It's a very real thing, and it's a horrific thing. Because of that, and because of the way we use the word martyr, um, it actually comes from the book of Acts, from Acts chapter 7. And Stephen is stoned to death as he is proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And in Christian circles, he is often known as the first Christian martyr. But because this word martyr 
means witness and a different definition, I'm going to suggest to you that he's not the first martyr. And it's important to say that because if Stephen is the first Christian martyr, number one, there were no Christians at the time of Stephen. The word Christian wasn't used until later on in the book of Acts. Number two, the word martyr has a definition, a connotation, and a denotation even for many of us. That means to die for your faith. And somehow that invokes all sorts of other definitions too. I'm going to sacrifice my life and get some sort of heavenly reward as a result of dying for my faith. But when you read closely and you look this word up, this word actually shows up in other places. Barsabbas, Justice, Matthias, uh, known as Matthias in Acts chapter 1 verse 22, is also called a martyr. Somebody who was there at the beginning, who witnessed, who saw what was happening and came to proclaim again what was there. And then Peter, in, in a couple of places in his speeches, talks about how I and the apostles and the disciples are all martyrs. Now, we translate that into the word witness, but it's actually the word martyrs there. So Stephen is not the first martyr, for those of you who might have heard about that or have considered that. There's a lot of people who are martyrs, but because we have the word martyr in our minds, that means to die for your faith, we miss some of this deeper meaning. And what is that deeper meaning? It just simply means somebody who has witnessed something, who has been called forward to give them testimony to the thing that they have witnessed. It all connects back to our announcement series that something happened about the life and the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And if you were there and you saw it, you're a martyr. You witnessed it. You experienced it. And now you can give testimony to it. Another way of perhaps saying it is an eyewitness. And not only did you witness it, but when you experienced that event, something radically changed within you. The event that happened that you got to see did something. It's almost as if from that particular moment in time, you were never the same again. Something about that event changed you. This might be what we mean by martyr. As an expert witness. So when we use the word witness, we're not just talking about people who are on the outside and how we have to go to them somehow to make sure that they get on the inside. What we're talking about are people that have seen something, experienced something, been in proximity of something, some sort of, been the beneficiary of something that opened your eyes that transformed the way that you see the world and that has transformed how you live and act and behave. From that particular moment, you are not the same person again. I like to sum it up by saying, basically what you have seen cannot be unseen. It has radically changed you. When I, you look at pictures of Jesus' disciples who are also called martyrs, they're called witnesses. This is often what they look like, very pious, very holy. I found this picture on the internet, which I think is more accurate. Oh my goodness, what did we just see? The word martyr, as I mentioned before, has this unfortunate connotation, dying for my faith, I get this heavenly reward. Sometimes it means defending the truth. I'm going to be so strong and I'm going to stand in this particular way. 
This definition of martyr witness means you are not going to believe what I saw. You're not going to believe what I experienced. You're not going to believe. I, 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 I can't believe that this world is like this. And if you have ever had that experience, or if you've ever had that moment where something has transformed who you are, you saw faith, either at a church or with a friend of yours, and you just went, something, something about you, something about this group, something about this church, something about this thing, you're a martyr. You are a witness. You are somebody that has seen it and has been ultimately transformed by it. It's really hard to use the word martyr because, again, all those words, just all those definitions still come up. But this is what it means when he says, you will be my witnesses. You've seen it. And that's who you are. You've been changed by it. Very much like the song we just sang, forever I am changed. And if you've been changed by that, you're a martyr. You are a witness, and that's who you are. And so you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, whenever you look this up, this is often the picture that comes up. They consider concentric circles. Danielle likes to say concentric circles of holiness. They constantly go out. You start in the center, starts here with me, then it moves to Ezekiel, and then it moves to a broader community, and then moves out. Um, some churches actually use this to describe their mission field or the way that they reach out. I found this on one church down located in Florida. If you notice, Jerusalem is their place. This is our place. And then they did this weird thing with Jumeria, Judea and Samaria. They squished it all together. Christians are so funny. So they push it all together, which means that our country. And if you notice, they're squishing it together because there's this uncertainty. What does Judea and Samaria really mean? Well, the geography of that Regular understanding Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth may not make sense with the geography. There's Jerusalem. Judea makes sense because Jerusalem is in Judea. But Samaria doesn't make sense because Samaria is in the north. And then the ends of the earth are all over the place. So something about the Judea, Samaria doesn't make sense. And here's what's going on in this passage. Do you remember your story? Jerusalem being the center place where God places his name, uh, where the temple is. This is the center, the belly button of the world. And Judea being the location where there's learned, erudite, smart, intelligent, educated people. What's Samaria? Samaria are those people that interbreeded with foreigners. They are not fully Jewish. They are half Jewish. Those are the bastards. Those are the people that don't have... We hate them. They are impure. Those are our enemies. If you think back to your gospel stories and some stories about Samaritan people, this is the idea that comes into play. Ends of the earth, who are those people? Those are the Greeks. Those are the Romans. Those are the people that keep coming into our area to hijack this country, to take over through their power, through their dysfunction through their slaughter, through their bloodshed. So when Jesus says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, he may not be talking about geography. He may be talking about sociographic information. You are going to be my witnesses. You're going to be the people that are going to share 
because of your experience in places that are at the center of the world and the places that are in erudite learnedness, places of education. You are going to be my witness in places where people hate you and you hate them. And you're going to be my witnesses in places that have provided some of the worst oppression and bloodshed and dysfunction that you have experienced. This is what that means. So how do we put this all together? You're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If you, read the, if you remember the very first portion of that chapter that we read, Lord, when are you, is this the time you're going to restore to Jerusalem, the kingdom? Here, are we going to gain control? And I love how Jesus responds, flips it again, as he has been doing throughout the entire Gospels. No, it's not about coming here. Guess what? It's about going out there. It's not about trying to maintain, once again, all the people coming right here to our central area. Very much like witnessing. How are we going to pull more people in so that we have more people over which we have power and authority and rule and reign? No. You're going to go. You've seen. You've experienced. You've been transformed. Now get out there and go. So what is a witness? A witness is somebody who's been transformed by an experience in an event. They've seen it. They are not the same. And they are now commissioned to go into the places that are centered around learning and education, influence, commerce, hatred, violence, and even bloodshed and corruption. And you will be witnesses there. You will be those people there. There are two real quick applications that I consider through this. These are two gentlemen that, for all practical purposes that we know, would not necessarily call themselves Christian. In fact, I were glass that I know he calls himself an atheist. Nick Kristoff is somebody who has you know, wrestled with faith and had some conversations. He has an article in the New York Times, actually, about Pastor Am I a Christian conversation that we've referenced before uh, with Tim Keller as pastor over in New York. When I think of the word witness, I think of these two. Ira Glass was interviewed in Relevant Magazine, and you can go and read it yourself. The title of the article that he was interviewed in was called Christians Are Horribly Covered by the Media. Now, he's an atheist, doesn't believe in God, doesn't, believe, doesn't belong to any church. And in this article, he talks about how he works closely with Christians, about how he has friends who are Christians, about how, you know, he is co-laborers, co-workers with Christians. And what he does in this relevant magazine is he is a witness to those people. He's had an experience, something that has changed him, changed the way he thinks, changed the way he sees. And to this particular article now, he's been transformed. That when people say horrible things about Christians or when they're misrepresented or whatever, Ira Glass can say, wait, wait a second. I've had an experience. I've had an event. I know friends. Something's different. And how that is being portrayed isn't accurate. Nick Kristoff had this wonderful article, The Other Catholic Church. 
This was back a couple years ago when the scandals of the Catholic Church were rising up, uh, which need to be talked about, which are horrible and, and um, shameful. But in the midst of that, he wrote this other article that said, there's another Catholic church out there, and that's the one that I've seen. When you go out into the most impoverished places or the places that are the least developed, and the only people there doing good work are Catholic aid workers. He is a witness. Now, he's not there trying to convert anybody and make sure that they come into his way of thinking. No, he's just a witness. I've seen it. I've experienced it. It has transformed the way I think, transformed the way I see things, and I am sharing it with you. I'm on the stand telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So there's one application of this teaching, that a witness is simply somebody who sees and shares. The other application that I see is the way that we often think about church. Now, I've been a part of church for a long time. Many of you have as well. And one of the fundamental fights in our psyche is how do we get more people to come? Invite. In fact, again, that was part of my uh, whole assignment back in college. Go out there and get more people into the church. But according to this teaching, everything's being switched. I love gathering with you all and having conversation and having wonderful meals and eating tacos and bouncing on bounce houses and sharing in music. Let's continue to gather. But this act story also challenges us to do something else. You are all witnesses, not here, out there. And the beautiful story that is told is because you in this room You listening to this have had an experience. Something has changed you. Something has challenged you, and you are not the same. And whether it is that you are a parent and you're in your family or an executive or a business person, maybe you are part of a social network or a gym, or maybe you're in high tech or engineering, in those places, you are witnesses. If you're doing interfaith work, if you're doing justice work, Um, compassion work, Uh, if you're doing any of these things, you are witnesses there. This opening chapter of the book of Acts highlights the tension between the disciples' desire, I want the power back. Am I going to be restored back to the throne? All these oppressive regimes, we want it back. And Jesus turns it around and says, you'll get power because you have seen something, you've experienced something, and you will go out there to the ends of the earth to be my witnesses. Not to witness, to be my witnesses out there. So my friends, my hope and my prayer is that as we continue to gather and we study, we do exactly that. We gather and we study and we learn and we pray with one another. We encourage one another. We strengthen our community. But the real push of Acts, the reason why we got here, how did we get here? Because those early followers took their experience, what they saw, and went out and were those witnesses to that world. Last, maybe some of you haven't had that experience. Maybe part of the challenge is you've been too bothered burdened, oppressed with the obligation to get out there and witness, but you yourself personally 
haven't had that moment or haven't had that experience or haven't witnessed it yourself. That's why we were going to continue to go through the book of Acts as we run into stories of how different people had that experience and how it transformed them and how it changed them. So we'll continue that next week. Jesus, thank you for your commission to us. And I pray that all of our definitions of witness and martyr and Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all of that stuff, you can continually churn and challenge us to think differently and to behave in accordance with your movement here on earth as it is in heaven. And pray in your name. Amen.